Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ms. Nicholson said, testified, that while she was standing there, she heard Mr. Holder talking. And she heard him use the word snitch as if he were calling Nipsey Hussle a snitch. The prosecution and the defense present closing arguments in Eric Holder's murder trial. He's on trial for the murder of Nipsey Hussle back in 2019 in L.A. But will the jury believe that it's manslaughter or murder? I'm Anjanette Levy, and welcome to the latest edition of Sidebar Podcast from Law and Crime. Well, this is a trial that's had a lot of interest. Uh, Nipsey Hussle was shot and killed in 2019. The defense for Eric Holder is not arguing that their guy is innocent. They can they concede the point that Eric Holder shot and killed Nipsey Hussle, but they're arguing that this was manslaughter and not murder. Listen to what the prosecutor said during closing arguments. And she saw him manipulating what she saw for the first time that day, the black semi-automatic handgun. Looked like he was putting bullets in the magazine. And she alarmed that he was going to shoot either at her or out the car. She says, you're not about to shoot from my car. And he just kind of shrugs it off and puts the gun away. He was, he was already planning to kill Nipsey Hussle. That's planning. That's premeditation and deliberation. That's thinking about it before you do it. Already puts the gun away. Tells her, okay, turn here. Oh, go over here. I'm going to eat my fries. So she drives behind that fat burger and into the alley. He starts eating his fries. He puts on his shirt for the first time that day. Why? Because he knows he's going back. He's already planning that. There's no reason for him to walk around all day with no shirt on, get in the car, and then all of a sudden put the shirt on in the car. He's putting that shirt on to give him whatever element of surprise he can get. 
So which one will it be? It's going to be up to the jury. The defense arguing that this was a crime of passion, that Eric Holder had no time to cool off after arguing with Nipsey Hussle and that he committed this crime. Prosecution doesn't see it that way. Joining us to talk about this is Matthew Barhoma. He's a criminal appellate attorney in California. Matthew, thanks for coming back on with us. There have been a lot of questions from people. I've been getting questions from people in the African-American community in Los Angeles as to why the testimony in this trial was not allowed to be aired, but we're seeing both the opening statements and closing arguments, which are allowed to be broadcast. It almost feels like we've been shortchanged to some extent, I feel. But ultimately, you know, this is a perfectly good decision from this judge, okay? Ultimately, what this judge did is they allowed media and courtroom coverage for opening statements, for closing statements, but concealed it for some of the evidence. And you know what? Makes a lot of sense in a case like this. There's a lot of outrage. There's a lot of sensitive topics. We're talking about first degree murder, right? So it's not something that we could just regularly, you know, just put out. There are consequences. There could be, uh, you know, some some ultimate, you know, backlash from people about certain stuff. So, it, it, you know, in the presence of justice, what this judge has decided is to limit how much broadcasting is allowed. And that's something that's completely within his discretion. I think people in the African-American community are really interested in the outcome of this trial. I'm getting a lot of comments from people, justice for Nipsey. From what we've heard from the press accounts coming out of this courtroom, do you think that, that the defense was able to convince the jury that this was a crime of passion, that this was manslaughter and not murder or second degree murder? Yeah, you know, that's the magic question. Really good question. I, I have a personal belief here. I think it's first degree. I think it's premeditated. But the beauty of this case, the best thing about it is that there are so many facts leading up to it that truly a jury could attach two kinds of theories to, right? You have a getaway driver who's saying that he loaded the gun, you know, leading up to it. People could say that's premeditation right there. He loaded it. He knew he was going to do it. Others could say that he was acting in motion, right? He didn't have it. He didn't bring it. Um, you know, from home, ready to go. All right, let's go kill him. It was, it was, you know, there, there's a lot of different facts that you could really add to it. There's also that conversation that they had before, right? Where, where ultimately Nipsey mentioned something called paperwork, which seems to be that, you know, it, 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 that he, it, there's a rumor out there um, that he's snitching. And that could be a leading motivating reason as to why this is an emotional response. This killing was an emotional response. If the jury finds it that way, if they see it this way, it's manslaughter. But ultimately, I think that there these are two separate periods. There's a sufficient cool down period in the middle. It's mm -hmm. nine minutes. It doesn't have to be 24 hours. And I think that this jury could find just based on those nine minutes, this is a premeditated killing. I want to ask you a little bit about this whole snitch culture uh, that exists in some inner city environments. I've done stories about this in the past when I worked in local news. Snitching in uh, the inner city and when you're talking about gangs and things like that, there is nothing that you can be than a snitch. And so explain to us what that really means in that environment. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I can see why Holder is arguing for manslaughter based on this concept of snitching. It's a very big no-no um, in, in, in gang culture, right? Um, we, we've heard about it time and time again in every other case, right? And it, it could it could incite an emotional response if we're talking about context. And the beauty of manslaughter is that it allows for reasonableness. What would a reasonable person do? It takes a lot of factors into consideration, hence why it's a mitigated um, aspect of murder. Now, ultimately, I, I, I really believe that 
Um, you know, snitching in 2022 is very different. And we've even heard about that kind of testimony in this kind of case, right? There's a, a, a declarant who had testified by the name, by a moniker of cowboy. He had someone who had witnessed uh, that initial conversation between Holder and, um, and, and Nipsey. And ultimately, um, um, you know, on the stand, he testified, it's not like that anymore, right? It's 2022. In the 80s, it could be like that. He even made a really good point, and this is why I bring it up. He said, what I'm doing here today, me testifying on the stand today, would be, quote, unquote, considered snitching. But I'm doing it, and I'm not worried. That Those were his words. So ultimately, do I think that this snitching paperwork was so motivational, so emotional to evoke such an emotional response so as to bring it down to manslaughter, I don't think it's sufficient, Anjanette. I don't know about you, but I don't think it's sufficient. Yeah, it, uh, it doesn't sound like it's going to pass that test at all. Matthew Barhoma, thanks as always for coming on to talk with us. This is an important case and people in the community out there really care about it. We appreciate your time. Thank you, I really appreciate it. The famous actor Kevin Spacey was recently in court in the UK to answer to sex crimes charges. He pleaded not guilty and basically strenuously denied the charges, according to his lawyer. And joining us to talk about this, this is a really special treat, is Lizette Aguilar. She is an arts attorney with Keystone Law in the UK, and she's going to talk with us a little bit about how these cases unfold in the United Kingdom. So, Lizette, welcome to Sidebar. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Anjanette. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, and I'm very excited about this. Tell us, if you would, Lizette, about the charges that Kevin Spacey is facing. Some of them go back to 2005. Yes, he's been charged with four counts of sexual assault and one serious sexual offense, which is causing a person to engage in sexual activity without consent. And as you will know, he has been formally charged in the magistrate's court already. But he hasn't actually yet entered a plea, although it's pretty obvious he will plead not guilty. Um, the reason that he started off in the magistrate's court is because all criminal cases in England start there. And then they may get referred up to the Crown Court, which deals with more serious offences. And because he is charged with one serious offence, the rest of his case will be heard in Southwark Crown Court which is opposite the Tower of London. And I do want to mention, and I, each time I do this story, I, I mentioned that he was charged in Massachusetts, Commonwealth of Massachusetts here in the US, but that case was later dropped by prosecutors and he denied those allegations as well. So Lizette, what is the next step in the case with Kevin Spacey? So the next step, he has a hearing on July the 14th at Southwark Crown Court where he will be asked to enter a plea. And as we imagine, it will be not guilty, in which case the judge, who presides over the Crown Court, will set a timetable for trial. Now, that could actually be in a few months' time. It could be up to a year's time. And it will be heard in the Crown Court before a jury of 12 people who are randomly selected. They don't go through a jury selection process like in the US. You basically just get whoever has been called up to do the case, unless a party specifically objects to one person or somebody can't do it for, you know, health reasons. But other than that, there's no selection process. That's very interesting. So there's no screening. It's almost like a lottery. You get who you get. It's a complete lottery, yes. Kevin Spacey was granted unconditional bail, Lizette. Tell me your thoughts on that. Initially, I was a little surprised by that because having unconditional bail isn't a foregone conclusion. Um, very often, 
a person will be granted conditional bail. So they may have to surrender their passport. They may have to wear an electronic tag until their next hearing and report into a police station every week. But in Kevin Spacey's case, he was allowed to go um, because his attorney argued that he had work commitments in the US. He also had a family and a dog there. But I can assure you that having a family and a dog does not necessarily guarantee you unconditional bail. As it shouldn't. Uh, I think there are a number of factors that they would take into account when evaluating someone's fitness for certain types of bail. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. And I imagine that uh, what weighed heavily with the magistrate, who is the person who presides over the magistrate's court, they're not a judge. They're not even necessarily legally trained. They're sort of like a volunteer in the community. But what would have weighed heavily is the fact that Kevin Spacey voluntarily came over to the UK. And in fact, it was only at that point that he could be formally charged. So he hadn't been formally charged until he arrived at Westminster Magistrates Court. And the fact that he came of his own free will, I think, uh, must have been taken into account. Lizette, one thing that I find interesting about the courts in the UK is the fact that they don't allow cameras. Obviously, uh, we love uh, our cameras in the courtroom when they are allowed in the United States. We have to rely on the sketch artists and any reporting that comes out of these courtrooms. So do you expect a lot of interest, a high level of interest in this case? There will be massive interest. Already when he appeared in the magistrate's court where all he had to do was give his name and he clarified that he wanted to be known as Kevin Spacey as opposed to Kevin Spacey Fowler which is his full name but really that's all he said but even for that very short hearing there was press outside there will definitely be press in the gallery when he goes to his next hearing at Southwark Crown Court and all the media will be gathered outside the court so there will definitely be interest and it's true um, cases aren't televised here. We have to rely on um, these court artists for better or worse, which is a little old fashioned, some may think. But um, since reporters are allowed in the court, then there will be a report every day of what happens. And just for our listeners and viewers who may not be aware, Kevin Spacey has ties to the UK. He was in charge of a theatre group there for many years. Yes, he ran the Old Vic Theatre, which is a very historic and popular theatre in London. And he did a great job there. I think he, you know, turned it around and really made it a place that people wanted to go. Well, this is definitely a case we will be watching closely here at Law and Crime. Lizette Aguilar, arts attorney with Keystone Law in the UK. Thanks so much for being on with us. This next story is so disturbing and concerning on so many levels. There was a Los Angeles police officer who was doing a training exercise meant to simulate an attack by a mob. His name was Houston Tipping. Uh, he was 32 years old and he suffered a fatal injury on May 26th. And his mother is now suing uh, the city and the police department. And joining us to talk about this is Bobby Chacon. He is a former FBI agent. Bobby, thanks so much uh, for coming back to Sidebar. We really appreciate appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Bobby, when you read about this, and I've heard of other training incidents with police cadets where they were nearly fatally injured. Uh, I was telling you about one uh, in the Ohio area. I mean, what are your thoughts? Because I, I understand they need to do these trainings and they need to get themselves amped up in order for the training to be effective. But this just seems like something that is happening 
more frequently than maybe we realized. Well, it's either happening more frequently or we're hearing about it more frequently. I myself, uh, there were two FBI agents shortly before I retired in 2013 who were killed off the coast of Virginia in a helicopter maritime training operation. Um, and during my time in the FBI, I was a medic on the SWAT team in New York City. And when we were going through our new operators training course, um, one of the new operators who was very energetic and wanted to make the team and want to make a good impression did kind of a, a roundabout kick to one of the instructors who was wearing a very big, one of those big padded suits because they're supposed to be beaten and stuff like that. And he took a, a kick to the chest, which didn't immediately incapacitate him. But later on, he was as he was taking the suit off, he was having a little tr trouble getting out of the suit. Now, this is an experienced SWAT officer who's just been kicked in the chest by a, a rookie SWAT officer trying out for the team. And I'm being a medic. We brought him over because we realized he was having a little difficulty. We put him on our little machine that had like a three lead ECG. We realized that kick caused him to start having a cardiac incident. So we got him to the hospital. Luckily, um, they determined that he had a pre-existing cardiac condition that he didn't realize. Uh, and the kick, you know, could have killed him. Um, the, the, the real issue is that the best and most effective training is the training that cl most closely simulates that real life experience. Right. And, and so you really have to put people in those situations. Now I've been in mandatory training classes where you'll see two people kind of, you know, gather off to themselves in the corner and tap each other and laugh and joke and say, oh, let's just get through this because it's mandatory training and stuff, you know, but they're not taking the training seriously. Those aren't the guys you want next to you in the real world when it really happens. So training has to simulate very closely real world situations. So you have to, as you said, you have to get amped up. You have to put people, you have to punch people, kick people, you know, sometimes hurt people in that real life type training scenarios. Um, unfortunately, sometimes it does end tragically and not that there's ever any excuse for it. The trainers should always be monitoring closely what's happening so that you can intercede before you get to the point where where the, the the case we're talking about now happened for the LAPD there needs to be people that really closely monitor and the more amped up you are and the more closely you're simulating those real life situations the more responsibility you have to really monitor what's happening in your training and the minute you get close to something like that you have to you know call it and you have to say stop Everybody take a breath. Let's back off. Um, you know, what we'll, we'll see what happened in this event if, if it goes to trial in, in the civil suit. But I think that, you know, like I said, there's, there's very little excuse for a death in training, but it, it's not as uncommon as some people might think. I'm reading uh, about this lawsuit filed by Shirley Huffman, who is Officer Tipping's mother. And it alleges that he was repeatedly struck in the head severely enough that he bled and that the beating resulted in injuries requiring stitches. And then he also suffered multiple breaks in his neck. And that's what caused his death. I mean, shouldn't there be, even though you're doing a training exercise and it should be as close to the real thing as possible, some type of protective gear on or something like that when you're doing something, especially when you're doing something that involves the head. I've seen these training exercises working in news. I've seen these things before covering stories about police officers, and they often have things on their head because it's a training exercise. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And like the one, the incident that I alluded to earlier, our SWAT guy had that thick suit and had he not had it, that kick to the chest that I described might have killed him. Because right. even with that thick suit on, he started having a cardiac event. Luckily, we recognized it because we were monitoring. We put him on our little monitor machine. We realized this, was, this might be an incident. 
we got him to an emergency room and he was okay. Um, but, but you're right. It, 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 the more closely you get to real world situations, the more responsibility on professional trainers to be closely monitoring what's happening. You should never be, you know, repeatedly struck. If you get one glancing blow or one accidental hit that causes some blood or something, that's one thing. But the, what bothers me most is what you just said as you were reading the description repeatedly when you get those repeated blows to the head or repeated injuries, multiple fractures, you know, that's when I start to question whether or not it was being monitored properly. And, and I know LAPD is a big department. My father and brother were NYPD. And I know these big departments have these massive training, especially when it's riot mm -hmm. training and there has to be multiple people hitting one, one officer. But that doesn't excuse the fact that you have to monitor that closely and really get in there and watch and, and, and make sure the minute that person's injured, you have to call it. You have to stop time out and let's everybody regroup. And, and, you know, because I think what you're what the way you describe it is this was not a one single fatal blow. This was repeated mm -hmm. blows, repeated strikes that caused the ultimate death. And I think that that's, that's the problem. And the situation I alluded to was one kick to the chest and he was wearing a padded suit. So, you know, the minute that he, he voiced some discomfort or some problem, we, we called a timeout, we put him on a monitor machine and, uh, and, and got him help. But, but the, what bothers me about this current situation is the repeatedness of it, the, the continuing of it. And, and yeah, you have to take multiple blows sometimes, but like you said, we have very advanced training that you see everybody I think has seen the, the videos of the people being chased by dogs, attack dogs, and they have the big suits on and the dog bites their arm and brings them to the ground. Right. We have suits like that. We have advanced stuff that protects people during training. And, and it's, it, if you're not wearing that, your department is not serving you properly. For its part, the LAPD issued a statement at the LA Times. Uh, this is Captain Kelly Muniz. And she said uh, that she can't comment on the claim or the nature of the training exercise, exercise, but she said the department is taking the matter seriously, has launched its own investigation into the incident, uh, looking into whether there are any changes that need to be made. She called his death a tragedy. It's tragic, she said, and we're all saddened by his loss. I would say this is ripe for a settlement. I don't see this case going to trial. That's just my opinion. Bobby Chacon, FBI agent, former FBI agent, thanks again for coming back on to Sidebar. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me anytime. And that's it for this edition of Law and Crime Sidebar Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Our producers are Sam Goldberg and Michael Dininger. Bobby Zoki is our YouTube manager. Alyssa Fisher is our booking producer. And Kiara Bronson runs our social media. I'm Anjanette Levy, and we'll see you next time.